0: Welcome to Best Life After Cancer. I'm so glad you're here. This is the podcast where cancer survivors and caregivers can get solutions and support to overcome the life challenges brought by their cancer diagnosis. If you are ready to release your fear, regain your joy, and reduce your risk, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Dr. Deborah Butzbach. Hello and welcome back. This is Episode 7. This month, I started a weight loss collective for the month of June on the Facebook page. I am doing lives there many of the days and teaching about my weight loss journey, so that is up and running if you're interested in joining us. Today is going to be my first true weight loss podcast for my cancer patients, and I'm so excited for this. First of all, though, you know the drill. I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor, so always follow the advice of the doctor who knows your problems and story. In this episode, there is going to be a lot of science, and it is a bit challenging, so don't be surprised if you need to listen to it more than once. There is a lot of information on the web to supplement this, and there is also a lot more detail in Dr. Fung's book, The Obesity Code, so if you want more information and to learn this in more detail, definitely get the book. I will also post some links on the Facebook page of places you can go to learn more about the science of hormones. And also some diagrams that I think are helpful to portray this visually for those that learn well by that route. Today, we are going to talk about weight set point and the hormones of weight. First, what is weight set point? It is the place that your body currently thinks it is supposed to be. If you lose 5 pounds with the flu, when you get better, pretty quickly you put it back on. If you gain a few pounds on vacation, pretty quickly you get back to where you were when you come home. Your body has an idea of where it should be. And it either burns off extra or uses less energy to gain back if you lose. I really think that what is missing in so many diets is an understanding of this. If you lose weight and don't change your set point, as soon as you stop dieting, you gain the weight back, often with some extra, and that becomes your new weight set point, higher than where you started. We all know someone who has experienced this, and many of us have seen it in ourselves as well. For years, a lot of blame was put on people that they had no self control. And when they went off a diet, they let it all come back. Shaming went on with dietitians and doctors insinuating that people binged what they had cut out when they dieted. And that was the cause of weight gain. And this led to an even more destructive belief that we can't feel deprivation or it is a guarantee that we will eventually binge on whatever it is. I think this is really off base. I think we are not addressing the weight set point in most diets. So we are doomed to fail from the start. Weight set point is a complex balance between many hormones, but for starters, let's talk about insulin. Insulin is a hormone produced by our pancreas in response to sensing glucose in the blood. More glucose leads to higher levels of insulin. Insulin allows your body to use the glucose as fuel, or if there is more than we currently need as fuel, it causes our liver to store the glucose for short-term use in the form of glycogen. If the liver is full, it signals our cells to process the glucose into fat stores. Insulin is most strongly triggered by sugar and carbohydrates, and any processed food that is very nutrient-dense. What I mean about this is energy drinks and energy bars. These are a huge amount of calories in a very small package. These foods artificially increase our insulin much higher than eating naturally occurring food does. To raise our insulin as high as one candy bar, one would have to eat a whole box of strawberries, or maybe even two or three boxes, because the sugar is tempered by the fiber in the berries, which slows down the absorption. But because the candy bar is processed and extremely nutrient dense, we can eat it and fit many grams of sugar in our bodies and still have room in our stomachs for more. One box of strawberries would fill us up much more than a candy bar as well because of the fiber and fluid in the berries with the sugar. So we likely would naturally stop eating before we scarf down the Costco-sized tub of berries. In nature, these concentrated sweets in berries or honey were few and far between, and required a lot of effort. Picking the berries is time-consuming and only available for a short part of the year. Honey requires fighting off a swarm of bees, and there aren't that many hives full of honey So once you take their honey, it takes a long time for bees to make more. So in the past, the sweetest stuff in nature was hard to come by. Maybe we raised our insulin like that a few times a month, but it was never a daily thing, and our systems are not designed to handle daily what we now give them. These huge spikes, especially when done many days a week, are very problematic, and we will talk more about that in a few minutes. But before we get into that, I want you to understand which foods raise insulin the most and which raise it the least. In terms of stimulating insulin, simple carbs and sugars like candy, any sugar, pasta, and bread are the most stimulating. Let me be clear with you here. Whole wheat pasta, whole wheat bread, things made out of alternative flours like almond flour all still count as simple carbs. They may be slightly healthier, as they have more fiber and often more nutrients, and are less processed, but in terms of insulin response, they all stimulate it much more strongly than other foods. This is why so many of us think we are doing the right thing, switching to whole wheat, but see no weight loss with these changes. Next in terms of insulin stimulation is complex carbohydrates, like unprocessed, starchy vegetables and some whole grains, quinoa, brown rice, unprocessed oats. Protein follows this, with fat stimulating our insulin the least. Now back to why high insulin is something we want to avoid. When our insulin is high for long periods of time, meaning months or years, our body becomes resistant to the signal. Just like we stop listening to things we hear every day and learn to tune them out, like the hum of the air conditioner or traffic on the highway, our bodies learn to tune out the insulin, and we develop the start of insulin resistance and diabetes. Insulin resistance goes hand-in-hand with increasing sugar addiction and food cravings. It is the the down-the-drain model of health. More sugar creates more desire and cravings, leads to eating more sugar, which leads to more cravings, with increases in insulin at each circle of the drain on the way down. To lose weight, we need to reset our insulin levels. I have personally found that for me, the easiest way to do this is twofold. I have limited my flour and sugar from all processed sources, which we discussed are the strongest triggers of insulin, and I give my body a break from making insulin by having amounts of time without any food or calories. This is called intermittent fasting. I have been doing fasting for 18 months, so what I do currently is not at all what I would recommend for people starting out. What I think makes sense starting out is the 16-8 plan that they outline in the obesity code. This translates into fasting 16 of every 24 hours and eating for 8 of every 24 hours. This would mean you eat all of your meals between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. or 12 p.m. and 8 p.m. if you're on a later schedule. During that time, you can eat either 2 or 3 meals with no snacks. I really am an advocate of only 2 meals during that time, but you can start at 3 until you get used to this if that makes it a little easier. In the morning, a cup of coffee with one tablespoon of heavy cream is okay before you start your window. This does not significantly increase your insulin. Remember, straight fat increases insulin very little. I personally am lactose intolerant, so I use coconut cream, which is sold by the can at Trader Joe's, among other places. This is not the same as coconut milk, which has more carbs and less fat. Please make sure you get the right one. I want to set some realistic expectations of what you can expect with intermittent fasting. This does not lead to the quick weight loss that you might expect, because for most people, the total calories are close to the same, just over a shorter time frame. What more commonly happens is that you will stay the same for 7 to 10 days, then lose a few pounds when the body resets to a lower set point. What happens then is that your insulin levels lower and all of a sudden your body thinks, wow, I'm at 200 pounds. I don't really need to be there. I should be at 198, and then it speeds up its metabolism to get those two pounds off. After that, you are usually stable for another 7 to 10 days, followed by another loss. This is so great because your body now accepts the new weight as its set point, and it will not constantly be trying to get back to where it was. This makes weight loss much less painful. You are still eating the same calories, just over a shorter period. The real challenge with this comes with the cravings that cutting out flour and sugar brings. In the U.S., many people have sugar and carbs as their primary food source. This leads to their bodies becoming what we call sugar burners. This happens when your body is so used to sugar, it completely gets out of the habit of mobilizing our fat stores for food. It knows it can just make you hangry, and a quick jolt of soda or an energy bar will follow. This leads to only ever being in fat storage mode and your body completely giving up on trying to use its fat for energy. This is so counterproductive, but it goes back to basic biology. From our cells up, we are programmed to conserve energy. If we teach our body that all it has to do is yammer for a snack and we comply, it will shut down the much harder, more time and energy intense process of turning fat from our bodies into fuel. It is the equivalent to our body of takeout versus defrosting the meat preparing a casserole, baking it and then sitting down to eat. Just like our brains want the easy button of takeout, our body wants the easy button of a continuous influx of sugar so they can use it in the minute and then just store the extra, which is easy peasy for it. It takes two to six weeks on a reduced carb load diet to reset our insulin and begin fat burning. Once that happens, you are what we call fat adapted and the body goes to that much more naturally with much less complaining. During the time where you are becoming fat-adapted, you will have cravings, mood swings, and generally feel like crap. Oh yes, you are loving me right now, aren't you? It is what you have to get through if you want to lower your weight set point and take this weight loss journey for the last time. I promise, all of these things will get better. You need to manage your mind around them, though, and not be making yourself the victim of the eating plan and then justifying sneaking carbs all the time. I'm going to work on allowing food urges next week, which will be really helpful. Moving on, another hormone that has a big effect on weight gain is cortisol. This is your body's stress response hormone, and I think this is a big actor in people who experience weight gain after cancer or during a pandemic. Cortisol is part of the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis, which is medical jargon for it being a complex feedback loop between the brain and body. Too much cortisol in the short term leads to a feeling you are racing inside, irritability and weight gain. It suppresses the hormones in your brain that make you feel good, like serotonin and oxytocin. Like all other hormones, if it is super high for a long time, your body gets burned out and becomes resistant to it. When this happens, you might experience fatigue, lack of stamina, and a less responsive immune system, along with a feeling like you are always cup is half empty. It makes sense that cancer patients have a high cortisol if they are not managing their mind. I spent the first several podcasts discussing how to manage the mind and think better thoughts, but I know some people like to know if there is a pill or supplement to fix it quicker. I really like the review of cortisone on the Goop discussion with Dr. Sarah Gottfried. I posted a link to this on the Facebook page. She gives a lot of information about medications and techniques she has recommended to reset cortisol which you can consider. I tend to be a believer in the old-fashioned way, which takes longer but is more permanent to decrease it, which is managing your mind and controlling your emotions. I have four things that I think all work together to really reduce my cortisol. I get enough sleep, eight hours per night if at all possible. This is actually something new for me. I really prioritized sleep a few years ago when I heard research linking sleep deprivation to Alzheimer's but it turns out it is a key player in cortisol and weight as well. I am not the greatest sleeper, but I think melatonin is a natural remedy that helps in low doses. I meditate. I try to do it daily, but I'm pretty consistent getting five times a week. I do 20 minutes before work with the app Insight Timer if you are wondering what I use. I have a gratitude practice where I actively search out things to be grateful for daily and record them. There is clear evidence that gratitude helps to decrease stress, anxiety, and improve one's satisfaction in life, which clearly would help to decrease cortisol. Finally, I keep a thought download journal to be aware of my thoughts and what emotions they are bringing. Thoughts that trigger a lot of stress are ones I work the hardest on because they are really damaging for two reasons they raise your cortisol and they lead to buffering to avoid them and feel better, which is also counterproductive with weight. Episode 1 went through types of buffering if you forget what it is or need a review. Finally, cortisol can be effectively reduced by gentle exercise like yoga, Pilates, or walking outside observing nature. One of the things that surprises many people, aggressive workouts often increase cortisol and because of this cause more weight challenges, food urges, and overeating. Things like marathon running and heavy weightlifting are in that group for sure. Next in the hormone list is leptin. This is one of the newer hormones that scientists have worked out, and initially they thought it would be the solution to all of our weight woes as a society. Leptin is a hormone that is produced by our fat cells. It signals our brain that we have plenty of stored energy and should stop eating. We definitely want more of this one, right? At first, scientists thought we could just inject everyone with leptin and people would not be hungry. But recent research unfortunately revealed that chronically high levels of leptin burn out the receptors in the brain, and the brain stops getting the signal to stop eating. Insulin also blocks leptin in the brain, so if our insulin levels are high, it is not letting our fat signal our brain that we don't need to eat. We need to reset our leptin levels as we reset our insulin. As the insulin drops, leptin begins to come back online. As your weight set point drops, you will find that your hunger is just not as intense as it was, and you are more able to fast and let your body dine in and have its own fat as a snack. It becomes almost a bit shocking when our leptin kicks in and we realize we are eating less and just not having as much physical hunger. Often, emotional hunger takes longer to change. That is hunger that starts in your brain from desire and thoughts. I will tackle this in upcoming weeks as well. Ghrelin is a hormone that works in conjunction with leptin. They are opposites. Low leptin causes increased ghrelin, and low ghrelin causes increased leptin. Ghrelin is a hunger hormone. It is secreted by the stomach lining cells when they sense that the stomach is empty. This hormone is also cyclical, and to some degree programmed by your regular routine. It gets used to your schedule and kicks up when it knows it is a time that you usually eat. In caveman days, it probably kicked up once a day, as they probably ate one big meal. In the 1950s, it kicked up at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as they ate three meals and really didn't snack much. Today, well, if you are always eating, you are pumping out ghrelin every time your stomach is empty, the ghrelin stomach growl, every hour if you don't keep feeding the sugar beast. As you reduce the number of times you eat by limiting your eating window and not snacking, ghrelin will decrease. I get the question all the time if I'm starving when I fast. I am hungry for about 20 minutes at lunch when I fast through lunch, which I quiet down with a cup of hot water with lemon, a cup of hot tea, or a cup of broth. I am pretty darn hungry when I get to dinner time if I am still fasting because I eat dinner every day. This is noticeably worse on Monday at dinner if I had carbs over the weekend. I almost always do a 23-hour fast Monday. What that means is I don't eat after dinner on Sunday until dinner time on Monday. I'm usually busy at work, though, so it actually is really convenient. When I say I fast for 23 hours, please recall, I have been fasting for 18 months, and this is not where I want you to start. But the truth is, I am just as hungry for dinner on the days I do eat lunch, and sometimes even more, depending on what I ate at lunch. My body gets to lunch most days and is like, are we eating? No? Okay, just checking. I'll go get myself a snack and dine in. I even go into the lunchroom where all my staff is eating with food smells everywhere and they say, Dr. B, do you want a slice of pizza or are you fasting? I just smile and get my hot water. An important thing to know about ghrelin as well it only gets shut off by solid food in your stomach. It is not shut off by liquids, so when you drink your calories, it doesn't realize how many calories you have ingested and keeps pumping. This is one of the reasons shakes don't help with hunger for some people and why alcohol is so dangerous in terms of weight. One of the final ones I have to mention is thyroid hormone. If you are a cancer patient, some of the treatments can affect your thyroid. There is an easy blood test for this hormone. Low thyroid causes weight gain, feeling sluggish, dry skin, thinning hair, and cold sensitivity. If you are having these symptoms, you could consider letting your primary know and seeing if they will check your level. There are easy, well-tolerated medications to address low thyroid, and it is clear, if yours is low, you will have a much harder time losing weight than if your thyroid is functioning normally. It's one of those things, I am always cold, unless I am actively in the middle of a hot flash. I gain weight easily, I have super dry skin, but nope, always normal when I check it. We always want the quick, easy fix, don't we? It is worth checking, but you should know that many people have those symptoms and their TSH levels are perfectly normal. So your recap for the week. Insulin is the fat storage hormone. It is strongly raised by flour, sugar, and very dense nutrients like energy drinks or bars. To lose weight more easily, we have to lower our insulin. You can cut out flour and sugar and use intermittent fasting. Cortisol is the stress hormone. It also leads to weight gain. I recommend lifestyle modification to normalize this. Leptin is good, you want more, and it makes you less hungry. It is suppressed by insulin, so this is another reason to get your insulin down. Ghrelin makes you hungry. It is the ghrelin growl when your stomach is empty. Drinks don't decrease this, only solid food, so don't drink your calories. Hope this was not too overwhelming. Head over to the Best Life After Cancer Facebook page if you want more resources or to ask a question. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Best Life After Cancer. I would really appreciate it if you could write a review on Apple podcasts. This allows other patients to find me more easily. You can also find more information on my Facebook page, Best Life After Cancer MD. On the Facebook page, there is a group for survivors and caregivers where you can ask questions or make suggestions for the podcast. I look forward to interacting with you there. Thanks so much for joining me today and I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank mm-hmm. you.